0: Feelings are like weather systems. Um, You know, like when we're in that intense pain, we feel like I'm going to feel this way forever. I can't imagine feeling any different. And so we have to remember that feelings blow in, they blow out. Whatever you're feeling in the moment will not last forever.
1: Hey, everyone, this is Thrive 5, and I'm your host, Clarice Metzger, a storyteller and strategist at Thrive Global. Founded by Ariana Huffington, Thrive is on a mission to help people strengthen their well-being so we can tap into what's best in us, the wisdom, creativity, and strength we all have, and unlock our full potential. Over the next eight episodes, we'll talk to guests like financial expert Tiffany Aliche and meditation crew Sarah Oster about pushing through struggle to unlock confidence and resilience. We'll end each episode with their Thrive 5, getting their personal self-care tactics that keep them going. This week, I'm talking to Lori Gottlieb. Lori is a nationally renowned therapist who also writes extensively about mental health. Her books have charted the New York Times bestsellers list, and she also writes for The Atlantic, where she gives advice to readers with her weekly column, Dear Therapist. In this episode, we talk to Lori about being kind to ourselves during this moment, communicating with our quarantine pods, whether that's partners or roommates, and how to create boundaries around social media. Let's get into it. So, Lori, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so We're much. We're so
1: excited to have this conversation with you today. I want to talk about something specific that you wrote in maybe you should talk to someone that really resonated with me uh in the book which is about your experience of being and having a therapist. You write about something that your therapist Wendell once said to you which is that the nature of life is change and the nature of people is to resist change. And I think that that is so true and it is been quite evident throughout 2020. Um, So can you tell us about a time when you were really resistant to change?
0: Yeah. Well, I think (laughs) I would say that, you know, in the book, um, when I first come to Wendell, I'm very resistant to change. I'm coming because of an unexpected breakup and I fully expect, even though i'm a therapist and I know better, I fully expect that he is going to validate my story, which is the story that all of my friends and I agree on, um, which is never going to be the complete story, which is that um you know I was completely taken by surprise by this breakup, and that my boyfriend is a jerk, right, and that is not at all what the story ends up being, and so I think that. There's this, um, you know, I think we do resist f- all kinds of change. There's, you know, literal change that, that we can see, like we resist doing the thing that we know we need to do, the changes that we know we need to make. But there's also these internal changes that we resist. And I think it's because it's so much easier for us to cling to what's familiar, even if the thing that's familiar is keeping us stuck or the thing that f- that's familiar is unpleasant. It's so much more comfortable in a lot of ways to say, well, this is the devil I know. At least I, I know what it's like here. And if I try something new, then I go into this place of uncertainty and humans don't do well with uncertainty.
1: I Okay. I want to unpack that a little bit, especially about when you're fighting something inside and you, you realize that it is keeping you and holding you back. So how can you get unstuck from that?
0: Right. So usually when people make a change, the, the minute something happens where you know they, they regress, they go back to something pre-change, they think, oh, well, that failed. Oh, well. And they give up. But the important part of the maintenance phase is how do you get back on track? You have to acknowledge it is hard to make a change. And if you can be a little bit more compassionate, then when you are having trouble maintaining that change, you're going to Be more compassionate to yourself, and that will make it easier for you to just say, Oh, you know what? Today was a hard day. I couldn't really do it today, but I'm going to get back on track tomorrow and it's going to be okay.
1: Oh, I absolutely love that. I definitely went through a period of time where I had to reassess my own the way I was talking to myself. And it really helped me to put like sticky notes around my room to just, you know. You got this, or like, you know, you're crushing it just to build that own self-talk within myself. But speaking of how we talk to ourselves, I think that there's this pressure on people to buck up and and be strong when things get tough. You know, as a black woman, oftentimes the expectation for strength, excuse me, or resilience um can prove to be more harmful than helpful, as I was just saying, I have to put sticky notes around my room. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on this?
0: I think there's this big misconception that, being strong and being resilient is not having feelings or not, not really acknowledging those feelings or not paying attention to those feelings, right? And, and it's interesting because we don't do that with our physical health. So with our emotional health, we, if we feel sad or we feel anxious or we're having relational difficulties or whatever it is, or we can't sleep, um, you know, we kind of say, well, I don't really have it that bad compared to somebody else. And we don't deal with it. If you break your arm, You don't say to yourself, well, I don't have cancer, so I'm not going to go get a cast for my arm, right? Um, You don't compare your physical ailments to somebody else's before you're going to go and get it checked out. But if you're having some kind of emotional pain, often people do not land in my office until they're having the equivalent of an emotional heart attack. And by then, not only have they suffered unnecessarily for however long, but it's harder to treat because we could have treated it much more easily if you would just come in at the first signs of something not being right. And so, you know, this idea that you're strong or resilient by not feeling your feelings, here's what actually happens when you don't feel your feelings. You try to numb them out. You kind of say, okay, I'm going to be really strong. I'm going to ignore the fact that I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling anxious or I'm really struggling or I can't get out of bed or I'm not functioning well. I'm going to ignore that and I'm just going to plow ahead. And here's how it comes out. It comes out in too much food or not enough food. It comes out in too much wine. It comes out in the mindless scrolling through the internet. It comes out in every imaginable distraction, online shopping, whatever it is. It comes out in an irritability in your relationships. It comes out in an inability to sleep. And you can pretend that you're not having that feeling, but numbness isn't the absence of feelings. Numbness is the sense of being overwhelmed by too many feelings, right? And so what happens is the feelings don't go away. They just become bigger because you're not giving them air. So what I say to people is, here's the sign of strength is reaching out for help. Here's the sign of strength is acknowledging that something isn't right and valuing yourself not only your life, but the lives of the people around you, um, to go and get some help. That to me is a sign of strength. I like. I
1: want to give you so many snaps. <laughs> like, that's we so... can do it. Let's do it. Let's snap. <laughs> like yes. <laughs> I, I. That is really powerful and really tapping into that idea that the sign of strength is reaching out when you do need that help. So I love that. I really hope that people like take that to heart. Um, so something that you have been really very open about in your life and in your book is your breakup, um, the one that actually brought you to therapy. So can you tell our listeners who don't know your story about that?
0: Sure. So um, I was a single mom. I had a six-year-old. I started dating somebody. We were dating for a couple of years and we were planning to get married. And out of the blue, and I say out of the blue in quotes because that is my version of the story that I bring to my therapist. Um, and I believe that version, by the way, I'm not I'm not purposely misleading. Um, I actually did a TED talk about this about how we're all unreliable narrators and um, and we come in with a specific version of a story and how good therapy is really about editing the story and and you know noticing sort of what's wrong with the story because whatever's wrong with the story is why you're stuck. So my version of the story is that. Um, My boyfriend announces out of the blue that he doesn't want to live with a kid under his roof for the next 10 years, that kid being my now eight-year-old at the time. Um, And so we are actually not going to spend our lives together, and uh, this isn't going to work out. And we had, by the way, just made our movie reservations for the weekend. And so I'm very fixated on that point. Like, when were you going to tell me this? We just, like, we're going to a movie this weekend. What do you mean we're breaking up? Um, and so that's my version of the story. And what I come to realize is in my very first therapy session, I'm talking about how, you know, how. Terrible the boyfriend is. How could he do this? Not only to me, but to my child. If he didn't want to live with a kid under his roof, why did he even start dating me? I wasn't hiding my child in the closet for the two years that we were dating. Um, you know how you know how unethical is this, etc. And what we come to talk about is a lot of what I wasn't really willing to acknowledge was that there were signs he never the boyfriend had never said. Um, you know what he said to me that night about I don't want to live with a kid, but it was very clear to me, and you know little moments in our relationship that he was not a kid person. And I looked the other way. We were just talking about numbing your feelings, right? So for me, it was about, oh, wow, that feels like something is there about him and kids, but I'm not going to question it. I'm just going to pretend that didn't happen just now. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, when he would get annoyed by kids in restaurants, for example, or, um, you know, there there was, you know, just times when he it was very apparent that he was like not a kid person and I just didn't want to see it because I so wanted it to work out. And he, by the way, did the same thing. You know, I was like, why would, why would you bring this up now two years into this when we're about to, you know, move in together? Why would you do this? Um, And, and he said something very similar, which was like, I didn't, I didn't want this to end. And I kept kind of thinking I could get used to it or I would be okay with it. And it got to the point where I, I, I kept, feeling like I wouldn't be okay with it. right? And so I think that we do this a lot with ourselves. He did it, I did it, where we have this this place of knowing inside of ourselves and we don't listen to ourselves. We don't listen to our own voice. We keep trying to talk ourselves out of a feeling that we know is there and it just leads us into all kinds of trouble.
1: Yes, a hundred (laughs) percent yes. Um, So you were both kind of nervous to state your needs because of what it might bring about. Um, which I think is something that everybody, we can all relate to, whether it's for a romantic relationship or any other relationship with your friends, communicating, um, but talking about the breakup itself, a breakup can be such a blow to, to your confidence, you know, physically, emotionally, mentally. Did you go through that? And if so, what did you do to build it back up again?
0: Well, it's interesting because I think that a lot of people are ashamed to talk about how much pain a breakup can cause. And especially, you know, we have this hierarchy of pain and I talk about that in the book that, you know, I say there's no hierarchy of pain that, you know, pain is pain and suffering is suffering. And I think that when we feel like our culture Minimizes certain kinds of pain that we minimize it for ourselves too, and then we don't get to grieve or we don't get to experience that loss in a way that would help us move forward. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of like I, I hear this all the time where people say, you know, I had a miscarriage, but it I didn't lose. an eight-year-old child, right? And so then people think like, oh, well, after a month, you're fine. Like, okay, you had a miscarriage, moving on, right? Um, But if someone actually loses the eight-year-old, people know, okay, that was going to be, they're going to be grieving that for forever, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so the same thing with a breakup, you know, it's not like a divorce after 20 years of marriage. It was like a breakup after two years of dating. And so people think, well, you know, okay, you broke up and that was, horrible but you'll be okay very soon. And so I really, you know, I I just let it rip. I let my freak flag fly in the book with this breakup because I'm going through what a lot of people go through and people feel like, "Oh, they're so, you know, pe- they don't want anyone to see what they're going through because again, they minimize it. Well, it was just a breakup." Right? Mm-hmm. And also I think as we get older, you know, I think people feel like, "What am I? A 16-year-old girl going through a breakup?" You know, but no, it hurts at any age. I mean, there's a woman in the book who goes through this at like 70, you know, and it hurts at any age. And so I I really wanted to be very authentic and transparent about the experience of of what it's like and how irrational we get too, right? You know, like all the things like at one point I am Google stalking the X, And, you know, I see that he's posting pictures of like salads in restaurants. And I'm like, how can he even eat? Did I not mean anything to him? Right? You know, because I'm like sitting there going like, I don't even have an appetite right now. Um, And so my therapist at one point says, you know, there's a difference between pain and suffering, that we all experience pain. If you're human, you are going to experience pain, but we don't have to suffer so much. And what he meant by that was sometimes we are the cause of our own suffering. So all of the Google stalking that I was doing, that was self-inflicted suffering. There was no good that would come of that. It was not helping me in any way. And it was keeping me trapped in the past instead of helping me to live in the present and feel my grief in the present so that I could move forward and create a different future
1: honestly, I am like taking that piece and sending it to all my girlfriends because we are all guilty of it. We all do this. We're stalking on Instagram or making up, oh, that she liked that picture from 2018. That means that they, it's insane. So like you said, you were going through what so many people do go through, but right now there's this extra layer with romantic relationships being tested by the pandemic. So what are you hearing from couples right now? What's making it hard for people?
0: Well, I think there's a silver lining, actually. I mean, I think what the silver lining is that people are really being intentional about their romantic lives right now. That I think people are saying, wait a minute, what are my priorities? Um, Partly because they have to decide who's going to be in their bubble. You know, if they're going to, if they're going to say, you know, I'm going to allow somebody else to come into, um, you know, my, my bubble around COVID, um, then they have to decide, is this person somebody that I really want to invest in? And what does that look like? Right. Um, So I think that people are, are really making those decisions and realizing too much earlier on, like if something isn't working out, that they're not going to waste a lot of time with that. They're going to say, you know what, this isn't working out and let's free ourselves up to move on to other people.
1: I, I love that. And i that's definitely applicable to not only couples who have been together for a while, but like you said, people who are dating right now and being intentional, having these conversations so that no one's wasting anyone's time.
0: I will say about couples that are that are um, have been together for a while and are going through COVID. Um, one thing that I hear a lot from those therapy clients are um, the sense of "I love my partner dearly, but this person is driving me crazy because we don't have any like fresh anecdotes or fresh things that we've done during the day." You know, it's like Groundhog Day every day. Um, here's a PSA to the world right now: is if you are single, those people and couples are dying to hear from you because all the people in couples are saying, I just want to hear from my friends. I don't know why my friends aren't calling me. (laughs) (laughs) And so so it's really important not to assume that people don't want to hear from you because I think that most people really want to maintain those friendships, especially because you can't really do much with them in person right now. So literally
1: on that same line of thinking, I actually live with my sister. So we've been roommates the entire time of the pandemic. It's been great. It's been super fun. But of course, we have had our uh, our moments. <laughs> um, so what advice would you give to people struggling with their partners or their roommates crammed together right now in isolation?
0: It's hard to know why somebody is doing what they're doing if you don't actually ask them. And even if you don't have the same perspective to be able to put yourself in their shoes. So often with couples or roommates, what I see is that, um, you know, one person feels one way about, you know, something going on in the house or about, you know, how they're gonna social distance or whatever it might be. And the other person either assumes that they're 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 feeling that way or doing whatever they're doing for a specific reason that is usually wildly inaccurate. And even when you find out what the reason is, instead of trying to tell them why they're wrong for feeling the way they're feeling, um, there's nothing wrong with feelings. Like you don't have to agree with how they feel, but you have to understand that everybody's feelings are valid. So to try to talk them out of their feeling is an exercise in futility. Um, What you can do instead is to really try to understand more about why they feel that way. People are very anxious right now and their anxiety might look different from yours and their anxiety might come out in different ways than yours does. And so to really understand, oh, tell me more about the anxiety and tell me more about what it is that's making you so anxious. And here's what's making me so anxious. And let's find some common ground here. We're both anxious. Maybe it comes out differently.
1: Mm-hmm. I, and that those are actionable pieces of advice, things that what people can actually say in these moments um, of conflict.
0: The The three magic words here are tell me more. So when someone says, well, you know, this is how I feel about that. Instead of trying to have them understand how you feel about it. <laughs> the the best thing or to try to talk them out of how they feel about it, the best thing you can do is to say tell me more. And every time you say tell me more, you're going to go deeper and deeper into something that's going to lead you to a place of commonality. I will practice that
1: tonight when my sister doesn't do the dishes.
0: <laughs> so perfect. Don't talk about the dishes. Talk about what is getting in the way. Ask how she's feeling about what's going on right now.
1: So they say that conflict builds intimacy. Um, Could this be an opportunity to deepen our relationships with our partner, our roommates, whoever we're with right now? And do you think that quarantine could actually make relationships stronger?
0: I do, but I don't think that conflict alone makes relationships stronger. There's a process that we have called rupture and repair. So the rupture is the conflict, but you don't gain anything from that relationally unless there's a good repair. So there are people who, as you know, you think of these couples who they have conflict all the time and they just, they just you know, the whole relationship deteriorates. But when you repair it in a way that feels good to both people, um, then you create more intimacy between you. You create more trust. You create more confidence in the relationship. Like, yes, we can disagree, but also we know that we're going to get through it and we're going to get through it in a way that that where we don't feel that we have been um, damaged by it.
1: That's that's really powerful and in taking into consideration that other person's perspective, but then also kind of going back to like the inner self-talk, what do you think are the hard questions that we should be asking of ourselves right now and of our partners?
0: Um, I think <laughs> it's funny when I, I see a lot of couples in my practice and often one person will say, you know, Well, he never listens to me or she never listens to me. And I will say to that person, how well do you listen to him or her? Because so often the very thing we're complaining about is something we are not giving the other person. You never do this, right? Are you doing that? So the hard question we have to ask ourselves is, am I acting in a way that I want to be treated? And am I doing it consistently?
1: More snaps. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) That's, That's great. It goes back to the golden rule, treat others how you want to be treated at the end of the day. And for our single folks who may be experiencing loneliness that's compounded by this feeling of not knowing when things will be quote unquote normal, what advice do you have?
0: I think that it's important to stay in the present for all of us, but especially I think for people who are, I, I think we're all very lonely right now, but I think people who are literally living alone are more lonely. And I think that when we try to futurize, right, like, oh, my God, what if this goes on for another year and how will I survive? Um that's not helpful because it. we call that catastrophizing. Usually when we project into the future, it's not a happy story. And I'm not just talking about COVID, but just human nature. And so usually we are creating a lot of anxiety for ourselves around something that not only hasn't happened yet, but may never happen. It's re- There are two kinds of anxiety that people are experiencing right now. And one is productive anxiety. And productive anxiety is when you're reasonably worried about something and so you take action to help yourself through it. So we are reasonably worried about the spread of the coronavirus. And so we are wearing masks. We are social distancing. We are doing all of those things to keep ourselves safe. Unproductive anxiety, on the other hand, is obsessive rumination. It's you're checking the headlines all the time. You're going into, oh my God, what's going to happen next month if I'm still alone? And, you know, all of those things. Um, And that is just, it, it doesn't move you anywhere. It's not like you can do anything different like you can with productive anxiety. You're saying, okay, these are the steps I'm going to take to keep myself safe. There's nothing you can do with the unproductive anxiety except ruminate, ruminate, and ruminate. We have not only a physical immune system that we're worried about right now, but I'm really concerned about people's psychological immune systems. What we need right now is to say, I'm going to stay in the present and what can I do to bolster my psychological immune system? Am I eating healthy? Am I sleeping well? But also, what are the things that nourish you? So am I reaching out to people? Am I taking a walk? Am I moving my body? Um, Am I listening to music? Um, Am I, you know, sometimes just like taking a good dance in the living room, right? (laughs) Um, Am I pulling out those art supplies from the back of the closet? Um, You know, every time I start ruminating, what can I do instead of that to interrupt that rumination?
1: So here we are in the middle of two pandemics, COVID-19 and systemic racism. And there has been so much loss and grief and not just the loss of so many lives, obviously, but also a loss of jobs and careers. And you just briefly touched upon people, you know, maybe looking to pivot careers, but, you know, loss of income, certain lifestyles that were once a part of people's identities. So keeping your morale up when you're at a low point or grieving is obviously really tough. And you've even written that sometimes in their pain, people believe that the agony will last forever. Have you ever experienced this feeling and how did you move through it?
0: Uh, I mean, you know, that's where, and maybe you should talk to someone. I talk about how feelings are like weather systems. Um, You know, like when we're in that intense pain, we feel like I'm going to feel this way forever. I can't imagine feeling any different. It's like when people are depressed, I often say to them, you are not the best person to talk to you about you right now because our thoughts are so distorted when we're in, when we feel stuck in that, in that real difficult place. Um, and so we have to remember that, you know, feelings blow in, they blow out, um, whatever you're feeling in the moment will not last forever. I think, you know, when you think about kids, so when I think about my, my son and I think when he was little, right. And, and a lot of times, like what, and if we all go back to our childhoods and think about like how big those feelings feel and how like, we feel like it's never going to get better. (laughs) Right. And then it does, um, but I think part of it right now is because so much is going on culturally and, and societally, um, I think it's a real opportunity for us to make things better. So it's not just knowing that you know, our feelings are going to change, but how are we actively going to be involved in that? Um, and I think that um, you know on my podcast I have this new podcast called dear therapists and this week we had on a teacher who was really struggling with how her students are suffering from not being with her because she's she's a very um, involved she's very involved in their emotional lives as well and she gave them this um, this assignment to do something kind for someone else um, you know this week what can you do that's kind to someone else and and it it it, because we know that when we do something, when we're kind to someone else, it increases our well-being as well. It, it boosts our well-being. And I think the same thing is true with like big things that are going on with Black Lives Matter, with you know, everything, with the election, with you know, whatever is going on. Um, what can you do actively right now to make things better? And there is so much that you can do even from home. And so I think that that's really the key is not just to to know that you're not going to feel this way forever, but to know that you are actively involved in changing the system.
1: I literally just wrote an article for Thrive about this, actually. Um, I have a creative platform on the side that's really focused on highlighting and telling the stories of marginalized changemakers. And during this time, I decided to start the money that I used to spend on my happy hours with friends in the city. Um, I started donating to various causes that were really fighting against things that I care about. You know, I might not necessarily be on the front lines, but this is a way that I feel that I can gain some control and feel as though I'm making doing my own small part to implement change. So I love that you said that.
0: I heard Angela Davis speak um, last week and to a group of students and um, on Zoom. and she was saying there was one student who was going off to art school and he was saying like, "What can I do?" And she said, "You're an artist. You can change things with your art right? As a musician, as a writer, um, you know, what, as a filmmaker, whatever your art is. So there are lots of ways I think people get stuck and they say, well, I don't know how to help and I don't know what to do. And I really want to do something, but I don't know what to do. Go with what you're strong at
1: already. So another topic that's giving people a lot of anxiety these days is social media, the internet. Um, People are endlessly scrolling on Instagram and Facebook and engaging in compare and despair. So how have you seen social media affect the confidence of patients in your practice or even yourself?
0: Well, first of all, I'm not anti-social media, but I will say that I think people need to be intentional about how they use it. And so I think what happens is when we go on social media, we as humans just naturally tend to compare. And normally we have that in smaller doses in real life, but on the internet, it's just right there in front of you in every way. And it's available 24 seven. And so I think the problem with comparison is that either you feel like, Oh, everybody's lives are so much better than mine, or they're so much more talented, successful attractive, you name it, um, than me. And we tend to sort of go into a place of despair, right? Um, So either we feel like we're not as good as the person or alternatively, we feel like, oh, I'm so much better than that. I'm more successful. I'm more attractive. And that's narcissism, right? And so you're either feeling like I'm better or I'm less than. And that doesn't help us to feel connected to other people. And it also doesn't help us to feel connected to ourselves. What we want is we want to feel connected in the world. We want to feel connected to community. And if we differentiate ourselves by either putting ourselves above or below other people, then we are utterly alone.
1: Mm-hmm and you you mentioned um the importance of being intentional with our social media usage. So, what are some ways that we can untangle ourselves from social media and really be intentional with the time spent on social to help improve our well-being?
0: Well, I think that first of all, we shouldn't be um, you know, bringing our phones to real-life social interactions. So right now with COVID, we have fewer of those, but, um, you know, with your, if you have a roommate or you have family in your home right now, um, please don't bring your phones into the conversations. If you're like sitting there with somebody in your household, um, just leave your phone somewhere else. You actually have a real person to talk to and interact with, um, meal times. Don't bring your phones. Don't have it sit on the table. People think, well, what if, what if I get this text about this or someone from work needs to eat? It's like you have to set boundaries. With your workplace, and they will get used to it. By the way, and the earlier you said it, the better. And you do it in a really kind way. Um, You know, you you basically are like, I'm not available from you know seven to nine o'clock or whatever it is. Um, That's that's family time. Um, Or you know, I'm eating lunch right now. I'm going to be at lunch from you know. You can literally say to people, I'm going to be at lunch from twelve to one. I'll be back on at one. And in terms of and then don't spend your lunch scrolling through Instagram. (laughs) so the point is get off of social media during those times we need a break
1: yes a hundred percent okay so laurie now i'd like to ask you your thrive five so we'll do some rapid fire questions and just answer with whatever comes to mind uh, so first, if you only have a couple of minutes, what's a quick confidence booster for you?
0: Ooh, um, I would say getting outside. What do
1: you do to calm yourself when you're stressed or anxious?
0: Oh, same answer. <laughs> Literally, I just, I walk outside and if I can see green, if I can see like trees or grass or anything, just change of scenery. Love it. What is your before bed routine? Always reading. Reading takes me into another world. It transports me. Um, It helps me to feel connected to the human race because I feel like whatever I'm reading about is an experience where I say, Yeah, me too. I felt that way before.
1: If there's one therapy tool you wish everyone knew, what would it be?
0: I would say that so many times people come in and they feel like they're going to download the problem of the week, they're going to gain some insight, and then they're going to leave. And we always say insight is the booby prize of therapy, that you can have all the insight in the world, but if you don't, make changes out in the world, the insight is useless.
1: I love that. And if you find yourself with an extra 15 minutes with nothing planned, what do you do and why?
0: Oh gosh, that could be anything from um, calling a friend to to reading, to hanging out with my son. Let me put it this way. It would be not being on the internet. That's,
1: I think, the perfect way to end this conversation, Lori. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thrive 5 is an iHeart radio podcast. From iHeart, our executive producer is Carrie Lieberman. Our Thrive Global team includes producers Marina Kadekle and Margarita Bertzos. Our talent booker is Lindsay Benoit O'Connell. Special thanks to Ann Sachs and Madison Odenberg. Our production partner is Neon Hum Media. Jonathan Hirsch and Sharon Morris are the executive producers. Our lead producer is Joanna Clay. Hansdale Sue engineered this episode and composed our theme music. See you next week.